across the world, real estate agents are underachieving. They're missing out on millions of dollars in commissions. My name is Pat Hyben, and in the past 27 years, I've sold over 6,000 homes, selling over a billion dollars in real estate volume. My plan is to interview agents from across the world and help all agents create their destiny. Happy Friday, Rockstar Nation! Hope everybody had a great week and is a killer weekend coming up for sure. Hope you got some good listing appointments out there. Got a good show today. Uh, Richard Nassimi is on all things New York City real estate. It was a great conversation. Always like talking to people in different markets and different. Uh, New York City is certainly different than a lot of what we get here on the show. I had some interesting things here on Facebook and all over. I got uh, a Tom Jeffries from Denver, Colorado wrote this. He said, I bought, and, and this is something he's like saying to the world out there. Like he's not talking to me. I bought Pat's audiobook and listened to it over two days. Such an authentic guy. And I love the way he read the book himself. It shows that he is not afraid to be himself and not afraid to make mistakes. He is transparent with everything, which I totally respect, along with many other things in life. I need to up my affirmations and up my game. I will record my affirmations and I will listen to them daily. I have a few more that I want to add to the list as it evolves in my mind. Here's a quick addition to my list. I am a great deal maker and I provide exceptional value to those I work with. So, um... That was cool. Then he put a link to my book. I mean, that, that, that's awesome. That's an awesome testimonial. And uh, I need to write on there and say, hey, Tom, why don't you put this on the, the iTunes, the audible.com reviews for my audiobook, which have gotten a lot better. You know, for a while there, I was getting crushed. They didn't like that I read it myself. But last 10 or so have been really good. Speaking of bad comments, like the ones uh, that I originally got when I first put out the audiobook, quite a stir on the Blair interview. Blair Myers on Wednesday. I don't even know if it was a um, if it was a stir on the interview with Blair, or it was a stir on the title of the episode. I think it was more of a stir on the title of the episode. I, I really wonder if these people even listened to it. Although some of them listened, the, the people that did listen to it liked it a lot. I didn't get any bad reviews on on that that I could tell. It got kind of nasty. I mean, uh, you, you know, here's the thing. It's 108 likes, first of all. Crazy. There's nothing wrong with being proud of who you are as long as it doesn't come at the expense of others, which is typically the case of being white and proud, or in the case of those that are Christian and proud, whom use that as an excuse to discriminate against gays, or even because we have never faced discrimination because of who we are. You know, that, that this is just one of... You know, I'm not going to even get into this because it's kind of negative. At the end of the day, Blair is an agent in an area where it would be perceived by many for him to struggle more or be harder for him in the Bible Belt to become a top agent as it would for a down-home boy who, who was very masculine. I mean, it just, I, I think it's the, the fact of the matter, the fact that he's gay and he's proud of that fact is just saying hey look you know i overcame the odds right 
And um, it is not what he wants. He even said in the show, it's not what he wants to be defined as. Let me get that straight. It, he's not defining himself as proud and gay. He's, he, you know, he wants to be defined as many uh, things other than that. But the fact of the matter is, like Jackie Robinson, the first black baseball player, I'm sure he wanted to be defined as a good father and a good husband and a good son to his mother and everything like that. But at the end of the day, he was defined by being the first black baseball player because, well, quite frankly, he was the first black baseball player. So if you're the first mega agent that's openly gay in the Bible Belt, well, that's just how the universe is going to define you. It's not really up to Blair. So so it's just, it's just the way it pans out. It's not... Right or wrong, everybody p pulls the thing, hey, this is wrong, this is right, whatever. You know, at the end of the day, like, listen to the interview. If the content was good and it was inspirational, which it was, uh, you know, take something from that. And if you haven't listened to it, I think you should because it, it, it inspired me. And I'm not gay, you know, not from the Bible Belt. It inspired me to liberate myself and live, I think, more out, more amplified of what I naturally am just by listening to him and listening and re-listening to his interview. And I'm hoping that, that, and a couple of people on Facebook commented that. A couple of people said, hey, you know, you know, most of us uh, sell our souls every day to pretend to be somebody we're not. <laughs> and kudos to him for, for not doing that. So anyways, enough of that. That is always interesting to watch. You know, here's a, a real life story. Something happened to me uh, today. Actually, this morning I'm, I'm dealing with this. I bought a house with my sister 11 years ago. She... She was a single mom, three daughters, and she didn't qualify for the loan by herself. I co-signed the loan 11 years ago, and I mean, we sold the house a month ago. Here's the weird part that, you know, I, I think we interview a lot of people on the show and their market is killing it, and that's the reason they're on a show because they're selling a lot of houses, and a lot of the reason they're selling a lot of houses is because their market is, is doing really well. Well, this is in Halifax, Virginia, near the Tennessee border, and you know, this house was on the market 15 months. I bought it for 130,000. I sold it for 82. You know, I've, I've lost 48 G's on this house and in 11 years. And the story I want to tell you is not even about that. The story is that at settlement this morning, they found a lien from Bank of America for 3,500 bucks. Uh, and it wasn't my loan. It was a loan from the prior seller. So, you know, of course, I'm like, well, you know, that's not my problem. And, you know, that's a title insurance thing. And lo and behold, they, they emailed me a sig my signature from the settlement 11 years ago saying I declined title insurance. Now, I don't, I've bought a lot of houses. I've never declined title insurance, right? I always get title insurance. For some reason, I declined it or it says I declined it. I don't know. You know, I could have just signed a whole bunch of papers and it was automatically checked off. Guess how much it was? 182 bucks. So 11 years ago, in my infinite wisdom, I decided to save 182 bucks or the title company decided that they were going to save me $182 and check that off. I can't be sure. It could have been my sister too because she was the one that actually went to the settlement and I didn't go to the settlement. But anyways, it looks like I got to pay $3,500 extra because I didn't get title insurance and thank God it wasn't 35,000 extra. But on top of losing all this money on the purchase. Now luckily we, you know, when we bought it, we I think we put 20% down. So our loan was still low. Uh, we still got to bring money to the table, but it could have been even worse, I guess, if if we hadn't put so much down, but 
Long story short, uh, buy title insurance. I mean, especially when it's at that little bit of money, 182 bucks. And now today I got to pay $3,500 and there's no way around it. And I got to pay. And, and here's, here's the sad part. The guy whose loan it was has actually declared bankruptcy and it was probably wiped off in the bankruptcy, even if it wasn't paid. We know it wasn't paid at his settlement. So the title company that did that settled it when we bought it didn't pay it. They screwed up. They didn't pay it off. They didn't close it. And since that guy has died, the, the owner of the title company has died and his title company is closed. And the old owner has been divorced and declared bankruptcy. So there's a good chance it would have been written off in a bankruptcy, but uh, he's not returning anyone's calls. So we're screwed in that aspect too. I mean, so anyways, a lot of things, bottom line, buy title insurance. You know, 28 years in this business, right? And and I've had title companies be like, oh yeah, yeah, we, it wasn't recorded right. We got to go down the courthouse or we got to, you know, it's going to be delayed five hours because we got to get it properly recorded or, you know, make sure that this lien is cleared. Never has there been a uncleared lien that, that actually cost money to the seller, the second seller after they have bought it never has never have i seen this in the thousands of settlements i've been involved in never have I seen this for and on anybody else i know it happens but never have i seen it on anybody else and here it happens to me so anyways what can i say what are you going to do there's always a dark side to capitalism and an upside to capitalism and this is just one of those dark sides where you you lose money on this deal next week we got a great week for you too you know very good week i got some hot shows on next week i got noah ostroff on monday I got Rachel Adams on Wednesday and Peter Vexelman on Friday. Noah's from Philadelphia. He's going to teach us how to create a business out of thin air, essentially. And then Rachel's on Wednesday. Rachel's written an amazing book. She's been on the show before, Sacramento, California, written an amazing book with Chris Heller's wife, who's the CEO of Keller Williams Real, uh, Keller Williams Real Estate. And uh, together, they put together a book. And, and she's going to talk about that. And then Friday, Peter Vexelman. And uh, Peter's doing some very interesting things with investors. And, you know, all his money is being made on spreads of investment deals, of, of flipping houses quick, buying them, and then selling them to wholesalers really fast. So that's interesting. All his money is being made on really fast flips where he's buying properties in, in bulk or He's, where he's buying properties, investing in properties, and, and wholesaling them really fast and making a spread on there. And he's starting to do that in all other parts of the country. So that's going to be very interesting as well. So it should be a great week. Anyways, that's all I got for you. New York City, here we come. Let's jump right in here with Richard. Okay, Rockstar Nation, we have a special guest today coming from New York City, originally from Italy. Mr. Richard Nassimi is on the phone, and we're going to talk about all things real estate and all things New York City. So, Richard, welcome to Pat Hyben Interviews Real Estate Rockstars. Pat, it's a pleasure and honor to be there with you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. My pleasure having you on, sir. So why don't you give us a little background on who you are, Richard, uh, so our rock star audience here can can get to know you better. Sure. I mean, I came, I was born in Italy, in Milan. I came to America in 1997, towards the end of 1997. I was in Diamond because of family, jewelry Diamond. My family always was in that business. So we came to New York and we started right away in that sector there. 
I was never fun about it, but you know, knowing nothing, that was the only thing I had. I started in 47th Street, then in 2005 I called it quits. And I was working in the restaurant, uh, I was the manager at a very high-scale restaurant, brasserie on the Upper West Side, across the Lincoln Center, whilst I was taking my real estate classes until I got my license. And right in 2008, I got my license, right after the Lehman collapse. So wow. that's when I started to do real estate. That, that's, well, you started at the bottom, right? It just went up from there, huh? Bottom, rough, tough, um, already real estate brokerage. I, I always call it the top entrepreneurial business in America and the world, where it's all about you working. It was the worst time, really the worst time in every sense. Wow. And so let's talk about where you're at today. You kind of have three pillars going. You have a commercial brokerage, a residential arm, and then you also have a development arm, right? Correct. And so, so go ahead. So the company basically, like you said, Pat, very clearly, it's cut segmented in three ways. Right now we have the commercial brokerage company, which is very below radar because we like to be in the commercial side, very radar like doing deals off market, quiet, we advisor on, on deals. We don't like to publicize so much. We mm. feel that that branch of the market requires that kind of like uh, silence. And then we have the residential side. Obviously residential, it's more, you know, I could say loud, more open, everything is on the market. You know, every of our exclusive are there on the market. We're very, very transparent in everything we do. And then we have the third side, which, which is like, me and now I'm in the position where I invest, I buy with my partners, uh, we buy buildings, smaller size. I wouldn't say the big ticket New York City price where it makes a boom, loud shout. It's like smaller buildings, we put them together and then they're ready, you know, we assemble like a little lot and then we can develop in the future. That's great. That's great. So let's let's start with your residential side of things. Like tell me about last year. How many how many units did your team sell last year? Last year my company officially, the Nassimi Group, was born two years ago, okay? It was started before when I used to be a broker in the other companies like Corcoran and all before. So it actually started two years ago. We are right now in the second year. Last year, the, you know, it was a very good year. We closed the market nearly to 100 million. We were like uh, making residential sales, but our, also our rental side was very, very strong. So we had a very good year very strong year uh, in deals wise we turn around about 30 condos and uh, in sense of right now uh, sales this year we started the year January was pretty strong February slowed down particularly March is picking up again so 200 million in volume a hundred a hundred million in volume what like how did that break down how much of that would you say was rentals versus sales well, rental is difficult because rental ticket prices are not that big. The commission is, it was, uh, I would call it a big 20, 30% of it. Okay. So how many to, let's say 70 million or, or $80 million in volume, how many, how, how many condos is that or, or, or units? Yeah, we're approximately, uh, you know, don't, I don't have the figures right now in front yeah. of me. There are about 30. About 30. So they're, they're pretty high priced, right? So they're like two or $3 million a piece. I would say the market between the one and Two and a half million was very strong for us. Very below radar. It doesn't make a lot of publicity. You know, everybody wants to hear ten million dollar penthouse, fifteen million dollar penthouse, twenty million penthouse. But the below radar, like one to two million, two and a half, it's still a very strong market. 
Very strong market. So how do people buy condos uh, in New York City for $2 million, $1.5 million? Do they, do they kind of get word out that one's coming on the market and then they, they feed into that? Or do you put them out there and, and they take a while to sell? What's it like? Well, we, 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 we work with the community, the brokerage community. So when we have an exclusive, we put it quite very, very fast on the market. We don't like keep it like quiet, silent. If not requested by the seller, usually put it on the market for different reasons. For A, because you're going to attract a big market. We have a big portfolio ourselves of clientele, but you're going to attract a lot of clients yourself. You're going to attract a lot of like uh, uh, interest on the market because everybody nowadays lives on the internet. So it became very user-friendly to find apartments on the internet. Uh, not only that, it gives a, a very good exposure. So, And also on top of that, we have all the brokerage community that I'm very close to and they know me. So they bring their clients. So we have a, becomes a very big network. So you say exclusive. Now, now the majority of the most of the country doesn't think like a commercial brokerage where you say, okay, exclusive. I mean, you have this exclusive right to sell and that's pretty much a given, a given, right? The, the real estate agent isn't even going to go to work unless he has that. But, but in New York City, it's a little different, huh? In New York City, they kind of, it's, it's more like it's a commercial thing where there's such thing as a non-exclusion, right? Non-exclusive, right? People just say, hey, whoever can bring me the buyer first gets the commission. Well, Pat, uh, to answer, before getting to answer your question, let me step one second back. I, I, I'm not sure how to talk about nationwide. I'm not sure about on that sense there. I can tell you that in sense of like, uh, I think that any buyer, any broker, uh, if doesn't represent exclusive, might have a client and might take the client uh, to see an apartment that is exclusive on another broker or a house that is represented by another broker. That, that creates a, creates a co-broke co situation. Mm -hmm. So, yes, New York City is a little bit different because New York City is big, high volume. So I think that maybe there's a lot of interaction between brokers. Uh, I don't know the other markets. I'm talking about maybe other states, exactly how they really transfer, translate these kind of things. I do think that it's a little bit everywhere the same way. Maybe in other regions, uh, maybe the seller, seller broker might not find themselves all the time co-brokering co with the other broker. Okay, so you co-broke a lot. In we, we do. No, okay. We do. Okay. I mean, it's, okay. it's a normal fact. We love and we we love the brokerage community because we think that it brings a lot of value sure. to the table. Uh, not all the time because sometimes you find the broker that is an experience, but sometimes you, you find the broker that is very experienced. We have a relation and it's great. You know, yes, the money of the commission might not be the total, but you know what? I always say don't think small. Uh, it's not just that's your last house you sell and you know the brokerage on the other side one day have a house that you know might be good for your client so you want them to treat you the way you treat them so so how do you go about getting uh, listings I would say that you know 70% of my listing is from personal referral from personal people I know from my network they all come from that some people know me some people hear about me some people read about me and also I get a lot of business by referral, like people tell about my job. I like to always go above the right, expectation, right. above the limits. I, I don't like to be normal. I don't like to be <laughs> service. I don't because then you know what? You're going to find a value on me. When I'm outstanding, people will pay any price, quote unquote, to have me represent them because I bring an outstanding job. 
Wow. Like, what do you do to make, to make yourself so outstanding that, that, that a normal agent might not do? Uh, I speak for myself. First thing I do, I put myself in my shoes because I buy, I'm an investor, I own. I think that way. So if someone wants to buy an apartment, I don't look like I'm just brokering it and what the hell. I'm actually there thinking that I'm buying, looking at every details. And you know what? Guess what, Pat? Many times I lost deals because of that kind of approach. Hmm. Because I am too caring for the deal. And sometimes people tell me, why don't you just act like a normal broker when you just create the deal? <laughs> I said, you know what? Sometimes I feel, what the hell? Why I do like this? I should be toned down a little bit and just say, you know what? Everybody's adults, but, and they can take their own decision. But I am not like this. I know. Fortunately, unfortunately, I'm not like this. I can't. I can't, if I don't feel a deal is correct, no matter if the buyer is ready and wants to buy no matter what, I will advise them my real thoughts. So I, every house you sell, you, you think like you're buying it, and every house you list, you think like you're selling it. Correct. I got you. So when a buyer represents, say, Rich, represent me, I have to get the best deal for my buyer. When a seller tells me, Rich, represent me, I have to do the best interest for the seller. So, you know, what's the New York City market been like? Because it, it doesn't seem to follow the same sort of curves, the same sort of S-curves, the ups and downs that some other markets have seen over the last, you know, um, 20 years or so. Tell me about what the market has been like, let's say, since Lehman collapsed. Uh, start there and uh, take me to today. What's the New York City market been like? Well, 2008 represented a big, big situation for Manhattan, I think for all the world, America, uh, especially in real estate after we had all the defaults, all the mortgage collapse. Uh, we, you know, the old, the big party was over, you know, finally got busted. And I feel like after that, there was a real drastic, enormous correction. Prices went down to really the right prices that they should have been for then in Manhattan. 2009 was a very study situation. 2008, 2009, people were studying the situation. Many developments were stalling. Uh, many apartments were on the market trying to be sold. Uh, some few smart people started to buy. And other people would say, oh, that just at the beginning, it's going to collapse more the prices. You know, human greed. They say, okay. And I was advising, listen, if you're buying $1,000 and it falls $100, it makes sense. If you're buying a two, three million dollar apartment and the price just $25,000, you can look at it that way because you have to see the upside. That apartment that you buy for three million dollars and, and if you don't think about saving $50,000 in two, three years down the line, that apartment will worth six million dollars. Yeah. That, that $50,000 thought you have, you might lose a three million dollar profit. And few people of my client believe in me and now we see the result. But to go back again, so there was a lot of stalling, a lot of like not trust. Took a, took a, yeah, took a, nobody trusted. I think that generally when things are going bad, people think they're going to get worse. And when things are going good, people think they're going to get better. Yes. They, 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 yeah. yeah, but the people, you know, people say, okay, it's going to, this is not the bottom. It's going to go more down. It's going to go more down. So it created like a kind of stall situation where, you know, at a certain point, landlord developers were like, okay, this is my rock bottom or your buyer you know what, go to hell. There's no, there's nothing else we can do. You know, it doesn't make sense anymore. We just keep it and that's it. We'll pay the, the fees, the interest, and we'll keep keeping the apartment until the market goes up. So when that started, people started to realize, well, you know what, it is the rock bottom and we should start to buy. 
in, in 2009 we started to pick up, 2010 we started to see pick up, 2011 volume started to grow and again everybody again started to jump on real estate, everybody started in 2012 to buy, to develop, to buy lands, prices started again to soar up dramatically by huge percentage, uh, Fed didn't tamper the interest rates forever, kept it the same, started to give a lot of incentive, New York City started to see a record breaking on tax abatement, which was given by the local state to, uh, to 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 push developments in very bad areas. Okay, so, so let's let's stop here. So we're at 2012, right? You right. you said in in that year there was a huge appreciation in property values. What what? Give me some numbers. What about what was that? Well, there was 15 percent increase. Okay, so you had a 15 percent increase in 2012, and then all of a sudden. The city decides to uh, give major tax incentives for developers to start building in, in some ghetto areas or some. No, that started in 2009. Oh, nine. Okay. But people okay. were still worried about it. It's like, okay, that's great, but we need more incentive. Mm. But none, they didn't know this was a big incentive because when they're building buildings, now people are buying and they're all investors. Without that big tax abatement, you know, their return is huge. It's huge. Mm. Mm. You know, it's a big thing. Because you buy an apartment and all of a sudden the only thing you see is paying a common charge and a very, very small, miserable tax on the apartments every quarter. Hmm. So that was a big thing. That started to respur and then everybody saw, okay, you know what, now it's time to buy. With all these incentives, you know, developers that had multi-buildings with many apartments, over 200 apartments, say, okay, you know what, if you buy, I'll give you also the first six month free common charges. Hmm. You know, there was like all so, kind of incentives. People were giving. So people finally, after three years or so, started pushing all their chips in on the table. Yes. 2013, 2014. I know you were director of sales then yes. for the Corcoran Group, uh, Barbara Corcoran's old company. And so, what was that like? What were you telling your agents? What were they? Well, my were agents they, they, were, they were, I, were they were just happy about that, or did you have some appraisal issues when that happened? Well, the bank was still very stiff in giving loans. They weren't easy. So what happened? the buyers all became foreigners. The foreigners were mainly European. The first trans of people in 2009 were Europeans because the euro was trading at 1.5 and the prices were down so they saw the great opportunity to buy. So Europeans came here in mass to buy. Then all of a sudden we opened the door to the Russians where they came to buy big ticket price apartments. They started to inflate the prices on the big penthouses or the big, big apartments. You know, the Europeans were buying one bedroom, two bedroom. The Russians were buying big apartments, like four or five bedroom penthouse. And then, then they started to incentivize the Chinese market with like the, you know, EB-5 visa program and all the, all the foreigners. From and the EB-5 visa, what's that mean? You, you spend a million dollars and you get a free visa? Yes, basically. Yeah. Basically. And that was, is that only for China or is that for anybody? No, it's not, it's, well, it's not distinct from one country, but it basically it got allocated mainly to Chinese markets because there was such a high demand, you know, hmm. and, and that started to really, then it started to flow money into all the segment of the real estate market in New York City between mixed use building, office spaces, retail, condominiums, there was started to be an output of money inside New York City starting end of 2011, quarter 1, 2012, up to 2015. A lot of cash of money coming inside the country. All cash buyers, right? Because, you know, they can't get See, a loan, yeah. But cash for me means uh, everything means nothing. Cash is a very abused term, according to me, by 
the real estate market. Why? Because it's not real. You see, when they say cash, they bring it from their country of origin, right? So we don't really care if it comes in a, in a sense of loan or mortgage. It gets to this country, to America, to Citibank or whatever bank in, in money. Then it becomes matter. cash, right? Because they, they might be getting a loan in Russia. You just exactly. don't know about it. Yeah. For the hell we know, it comes from the Bank of Russia. I'm making an example. Or from the uh, OBC Singapore Bank. It comes uh, money. We don't know. We can know. Maybe we don't care about knowing because it doesn't really concern us. And there's nothing to be concerned about. It, it can be a loan that the, the buyer from origin taking. And it's exactly what was happening. Banks overseas had the money in the banks, they don't know what to do. They started to give them to their buyers at a very good discounted rate. So you know what they said? They said, let's buy in America, New York City. So they would say, I'm a cash buyer. They wouldn't put mortgage contingency on the contract. And that's it. So, you know, we wouldn't care because everything is clear and transparent. Money comes in the bank and it's clear and transparent. So, but the, the term was a little bit too... Uh, I think too abused about. So you needed to see when someone said a cash buyer, you say, "I want to see cash in an American bank and, and in, you know a, a local right. bank." But I don't that never see- happened because it's not really cash. It's like just you know banking between banking. Wow. Well, you know, so why old- why do you think that uh, all these foreigners, uh, for lack of a better way to say this, said, "Hey, you know, I want to I want to put all my money in New York City real estate." I mean, why why not Dayton, Ohio? Why you know, why didn't they spread it out a little bit? Why do you think they all <laughs> are instead you know buying like one condo for ten million dollars in New York City that they never go to? But let me ask you the question, reverse it towards you. Tell me a country you're very familiar with, any country, whatever you love, out of America. Let's say China. China. If I tell you, buy an apartment in uh, Shanghai or Beijing, you know, Beijing, yeah, right? Yeah. Say, yes, I'm very interested. Now I tell you, buy an apartment in the province of Shenzhen. Yeah. What are you going to tell me? Yeah. You're not, right. not going to go all the way there. That's yep. a good point. That's a good point. To be honest, you know, New York City is the cap. It's the capital of, um, of the world economy. So if I tell you come and buy New York City, everybody wants a piece of an action. Hmm. I tell you Miami, you say, sure, yeah, of course. You, you're going to start to go always on tier number one, but you start to evaluate and study. San Francisco is a great town, so a very huge surge, nearly 20% year after year on the real estate, right? LA. But if I tell you right now, let's go to, you know, Ohio, me and you, Akron, Ohio, me and you may might understand, you know, a citizen, Akron, Ohio, but nonetheless, you will tell me, Rich, we have to go me and you, study the market, understand what we're buying, correct or wrong? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So figure out a foreigner that doesn't know anything about Akron, Ohio, which maybe is a very good market internally, but externally, they don't know about it. And, and, not and, investor. and these guys are looking just uh, actually just to park their cash, right? They're, are they even looking to rent these things out or are they just looking for a place to put the cash? The real test path going to come in quarter three, 2016, when we're going to have over six, 7,000 apartments on the market. Wait, wait a minute. Stop right there. What, what do you mean by that? The big test would be all these apartments that are in contract in this new development that they're slated for closing in quarter three and quarter four, 2016. All this kind of abundance of uh, of inventory gonna come on the market. We will see. There so are- there's there's some people that are building condos that are gonna put up for sale in mass coming at the end of uh, this year. Correct. 
And, and, and these are, are big buildings that they've been building for a while, I guess, huh? Yeah, they've been starting a foundation way back. And now they're slated to be completed by quarter three and quarter four, 2016. And, you know, God knows in 2017, quarter one, how many apartments are going to come. And so I can tell by your voice that you feel that it's, it's going to be a glut in the market. It's going to shift the tide, so to speak. You're going to go from a seller's market to a buyer's market just because the inventory is going to be so high? Well, I didn't say substantially that, Pat. There will be a lot of inventory, yes, but it, it's not going to be like only a sudden going to shift all to a buyer's. Right now, it's a totally seller market, but it's going to relax the seller market pretense. It's going to relax the seller market uh, requests. You know, you're going to relax a little bit that side there. I don't mm. think it's going to totally shift okay. the buyer side. We're still early for that. So did it go up? Did the values go up between 2012 and 2015 in New York City? Yes, of course. I would say about 4% year after year. Four. Okay. So not that much, but a little bit. Yeah. So, well, so the last... it's a big dramatic change. If you ask me over years, 4%, 4 to 5% is a big increase. Yeah. Yeah. It's compound. Yeah, so. So uh, 2006, right, a condo was worth $2 million. What would that same condo be worth today, 10 years later? About the same, more or less? Uh, I would say, well, but, you know, there's also the change of inflation of years. So in proportion, I think that we are getting close to 2006 prices. If not, we're starting to break them higher. Okay. Okay, well, that's that's interesting to know. So, so what do you what's your prediction? What what do you think, Rich, is going to happen over the next ten years or so in New York City? Uh, we're gonna have uh, this very transitional year, 2016, 2017 is gonna be more slower. I think that we're ready to get a big collapse in the office market building once the 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 you know all this tech uploads company gonna burst. Then we're gonna have a big problem. So, so talk, talk to me about that. What do you, in this office, what does so that mean? Yeah. Right now, all these companies here, these startup companies, right? They're getting loaded with money from investors, right? And they're the ones who are taking big spaces in these new buildings, office buildings. Oh, I see. Right. And they're paying ridiculous amount of money per square feet. They're not even looking at it. The, the very weird thing is these office buildings are like mining camps. They like don't even furnish them. They just put a desk, a phone, and a computer. That's it. They don't fill them. They don't fill them in. And they rent all these spaces. It shows that they're there and ready to get out as soon as things go bad. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny because in their mind, they're thinking that's startup style. It's interesting because uh, I invest money in startup companies. I have 16 of them that I've invested in. I, 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 too. I went and looked at one last week. And what they did is they, they, they're renting some space. And just like they, you said, they ripped out all the carpet. And they took everything out, and it's a cement floors and yeah. a bunch of whiteboards and some beanbag chairs. And yeah. I said, uh, what the hell did you guys do? Because there was one next door that was all carpeted up and painted and everything. And they go, we wanted to look like a startup. Exactly. So is it that they want to look like a quote-unquote startup, that that is the clothes, that is the style, that is what a startup looks like? Or do you think that it's because they want to be able to get the hell out of there when the, when the thing shuts down if it doesn't work? But I, I never heard about I want to look like a startup. I mean, I don't think Google's, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn offices are like this. They're actually very super tech company, beautiful offices. They're spending millions of dollars. I don't think that's the right answer. I don't think they want to look like a startup. I think they have no choice because they don't want to spend too much money 
into furnishing because you never know. Startup can open as fast and close as fast as they open. So it's easier to just shop some desks. Some of the offices don't even have all this phone. They use their cell phones paid by the company. It's easier. So what are you going to be left with like 100 computers, 100 desks? Mm, wow. And yeah. 100 chairs. That's it. I mean, and on one hand, I guess it's good for the, the owner of the building, right? Because you don't have that tenant improvement. It's good for the rent they perceive, the price per square feet, because they pay top dollars because A, they're saving money on the furnitures, and B, they're actually not sure if they're going to be there, be there forever, so they pay top dollars as long as they have the space in a high-tech building. Hmm. So it's good for the landlord. On the short run, yes. On the long run, I'm not sure. Yeah, on the long because they're not tied in, like you said. They're not, no, uh, they don't you know. put in their anchor. They're just their mining camp. Wow, interesting. If they find the gold, they stay there. If not, they leave. So what what trends are you seeing now with some of the buyers today, uh, as far as what they're looking for in a house? What 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 makes a what makes one of your condos sell quick versus one that that sits on the market for a while? Well, uh, besides price, obviously, what what style type things are you seeing people are wanting in New York City? Nowadays, people started to become very creative. They started to build huge like, amenities, like very exclusive amenities um, to attract buyers nowadays. I think the old-fashioned thing, the most important thing is location. Yeah, well, New York City, that would make sense, right? I mean, that's... Yes, yes. Well, now in New York City, in 2013, 2014, every, everywhere became AAA location overnight, uh, if you ask me. But still, there's some areas that in a normal economy... Is not a AAA location. You can't tell me all Manhattan is AAA location. So you mean before a AAA meant like right downtown, like you know Times Square or whatever, and then as slowly other boroughs started to be added to what they consider AAA, where before they were considered you know suburbs or almost second no, class. No, even in Manhattan, even in Manhattan, some areas you were like, well, I would never move there. I mean, that's underdeveloped, and it's still underdeveloped. Many areas of Manhattan, you know. There's very old buildings. There are very like open areas, like not renovated. And like, you know, it would be funny if you can get an aerial tour of Manhattan every week. You see that there's so much you can buy and build still that you're not going to be finishing in the next 300 years. And, uh, you know, because of the economy right now, the real estate booming like, like never before, every area became expensive and everybody demands a high ticket price because of the markets. So when you and your you and you and your partners buy and develop um, these smaller buildings, what are you looking for? And are you scared that maybe you're gonna overpay and end up at the the height of the market? I, I have two criteria of purchasing paths for ourselves, and that's translate to all my customers when they want to buy anything else. My criteria is very very simple, not complicated. I don't want to look like a genius. It's very simple. It's when you buy in AAA location, you pay the dollar, and that's fine. When it's not in AAA location, the price has to make sense, and there must be some sense to the building. Like you're buying it for a reason, not just to buy it. And and and, and what does buying it for a reason mean? I mean, what could the reason just be? Because you want to rent it out, and you're going to make uh, make maybe, money on maybe it. Maybe there's improvement to be done uh, to the retail section. The apartments upstairs has a lot of air rights unused. There must be some interesting uh, value to the building rather than just buying the building per se, like for itself. Now, a lot of real estate investors, you know, particularly in the residential arena, use the 1% rule, 
right? Which is you buy a house, let's say in Akron, Ohio for $100,000. It's a good buy if you could rent it for 1000 a month. What's it like in New York City? Uh, yes, everybody wants to return. Uh, they have to have a profit. It can be a dollar or it can be $100,000. Profit is always important. That's the main, main motto, I would say, in real estate. You need to have a profit. Sometimes, I, if I buy an apartment, my investor, in a great location, for example, we bought this apartment here, which needs God renovation, in 40 East 78th Street, which is corner Madison, 78th in Madison. And we're going to God renovate it. If I rent it with all my costs, I would be making maybe zero, not losing zero. Okay. When I sell it, it's when people are going to make the line at the door to buy it. Mm. So, so, so I'm going to get back my return all at the sell. So it's all an appreciation play at this Correct. point right now. Right. The location is the best, AAA. So that's what I like. I got you. Was it, was it ever a cash flow play in New York City or is it, has it always been like that? Has it always been, look, you buy in New York City for appreciation. You don't buy for cash flow. Well, the, the return in Manhattan is way more conservative than outside New York City. You know, when you go, for example, uh, somewhere in Florida, not Miami, around Florida or like even in Georgia or Michigan, you always want double digit return on an investment. In New York City, you have to understand that, you know, it's 2 to 3% the return. If you are 3%, 3.5, you're really in good shape because then in the future with appreciation, that's great. You know, more, I would say, in straight condominiums in great location, I think 2% is fair. You mean 2%, uh, like if you put a million dollars into a place. It, After all expenses, you get a 2% net in your pocket. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So you make about 20 grand. Uh, yeah. Hmm. But the, the good thing in the upside, when you're going to sell the apartment in one or two years, you're going to sell it for 1.5. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a different world, but like you said, I mean if you've if you've got buyers that are outside the normal realm of buyers, uh, it makes a lot more sense. I mean you've got buyers that are not going to buy in Akron, Ohio, or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Then it is what it is, right? I mean, uh, you've, the market is open to the world. Correct. 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 Very interesting. Very well. This has been a, a very enlightening conversation here, Rich. I'm going to put everything that we talked about on hybendigital.com backslash rich. I don't think I believe I have any other riches. I'm going to just put rich because uh, if you listen to this, you'll you'll be rich. What is there anything? Uh, is there anything you'd like to leave us with, Rich? That some software or some ideas that you're using currently that you're excited about that our listeners could also use? I I am a very modern but conservative person. I love to adapt to modern Android's uh, data data search tool. I love like internet with the new resources always get better, but I always want to advise clients and non-clients, whoever are hearing us, always the most important way to understand something in real estate or anything, it's always the human touch, human person. Go on the field yourself, talk to brokers, talk to mortgage brokers, check the market, ask advice. and. Uh, not the computer sometimes cannot give you the same advice that you can get on the field. Like I am, I am a concentration of experience, a concentration of deals done, deals lost. In my life, I made 
more deals and lost more deals, you know. So I have the experience to suggest, to advise, to to tell you what you can do, when you can do. A good broker can suggest you what to do, what not to do. A genuine broker you should hear because he's your eyes and ears of the market that a computer at the end of the day cannot give you. Mm. So all your clients, you're calling them, what, every day, every other day, something like that? Depends, yes. I'm Investors, we have lunch together. We discuss state of the market. Sometimes we don't even talk about the real estate. We talk about the economy, the currency. We talk about the commodities. You need to always, always have a touch of the market together. Hmm. There's a lot of time spent, it sounds like, uh, you know. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. I smell, breathe real estate. <laughs> That's my bread. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. The Rockstar Nation appreciates you and the best of luck to you. And maybe next time I'm in New York City, we can get together and break some bread. With great pleasure, Pat. Great pleasure. And thank you again for having me on air with you. You're welcome. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this session of Real Estate Rockstars. I'm Pat Hyben, and I appreciate you spending time tuning in for some rock solid advice. I encourage you to take action on something that you have connected with. These insights, along with goal setting, will help carry you to achieving your destiny. Visit hybendigital.com for resources, how to's, ebooks, and so much more. Also, reach out to us on Twitter. My handle is at Pat Hyben. And don't forget, Rockstar Nation, keep rocking. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.